Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHESS, I would like to welcome you to the CHESS Journal Podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, your CHESS Podcast Moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a terrific discussion of whether patients with advanced lung disease should be offered ECMO as a bridge to transplant if they have not yet been listed for lung transplant. We are fortunate today to have Dr. Matthew Baquetta and Dr. Whitney Warren as our guests. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. Dr. Baquetta is the Surgical Director of the Vanderbilt Lung Institute, a thoracic and lung transplant surgeon, and Co-Director of ECMO at Vanderbilt University. He has degrees in engineering, business, medical ethics, and medicine, and was recently inducted as a fellow in the American Institute for Medical and Biologic Engineering. Dr. Warren is the Medical Director for the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Clinic and an academic faculty at a teaching hospital in Texas. She is part of her hospital's primary ECMO team and participates in ECMO management, cannulation, and transport. Her academic interests include advanced lung disease, ECMO, and interventional pulmonology. Dr. Baquetta and his colleagues wrote the yes side of this point counterpoint, and Dr. Warren and her colleagues wrote the accompanying counterpoint. Dr. Baquetta, you argued that ECMO as a bridge to decision regarding lung transplant should be offered, and the only question is which patients it should be offered to. Can you please explain why you argued that the bridge to decision ECMO should be offered? Sure. Um, you know, it's a tough decision. It always is a tough decision, and I don't want to make it sound like it's black and white, but ECMO bridge to transplant is an accepted form of support for patients awaiting lung transplant. And multiple centers from around the world have reported their experiences with its use and improving outcomes. The real questions we have to answer are who to offer it to, and since it's a very time-limited intervention for how long to use it and how to monitor that. Ethically, I don't think there's a difference um, you know, between this and offering to support a patient with other medical interventions while completing their evaluation for weightless eligibility, for example, tracheostomy uh, or invasive me- uh, mechanical ventilation. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, is it ethically different to offer a bridge to decision that involves performing tracheostomy and placing someone on mechanical on a mechanical ventilator while evaluating them for lung transplantation? And I don't think there really is. There's, you know, it's a, it's a little more invasive in some sense. Uh, it's, it requires different expertise. But if you look at our current data from expert lung transplant and ECMO centers, the outcomes are arguably better with ECMO bridge to transplant versus invasive mechanical ventilation. So I think with tempered judgment and expert care, ECMO can provide a pathway of life for patients uh, with end-stage lung disease who are not listed for lung transplant at the time of their critical admission. So I think we have to ask ourselves, should we deny these patients because they were referred late in their disease process you know, should we deny a pathway uh, to life because of circumstances surrounding the patient's pre-admission care or access to care or even random events that may occur with somebody that already has some chronic lung disease? Great. 
Can you please expand, expand on what factors should be considered in determining whether an individual patient should be offered ECMO? Well, I think like most things in medicine and certainly um, in my area of, of uh, expertise and the work that I do as a surgeon, patient selection is really the sine qua known for any medical or surgical therapy, whether considering management of lung cancer or lung transplantation, but certainly for transplantation uh, for any solid organ. And I think the critical factors for us to consider when we're making these decisions are, one, you know, what is the physical condition of the patient at the time of contact or admission? That is, you know, what is their state of frailty? A severely deconditioned older patient is very difficult to support successfully, you know, ECMO or otherwise. And having access to uh, a specialized lung transplant and ECMO center that is amendable to rapid evaluation is critical. If you uh, sit on a patient for too long at a center that may not be willing to consider them, uh, that pretty much determines their fate. So unfortunately, delay in access delays the decision-making process, and this can have untoward impact on the outcome for these patients. The patients or any type of candidate really should have a, com a uh, completed or significant portion of their comprehensive transplant evaluation done. It's difficult to take somebody who's brand new to the medical system, doesn't even have really a good, solid, long-term relationship with a referring physician, um, and to get those patients through a transplant evaluation is difficult, if not impossible. So. Patients that lack initial evaluations and thus require significant testing to confirm eligibility would make poor bridge to dis, uh, decision ECMO candidates. And, you know, the transplant selection process is very complex. It's multidisciplinary. We seek multidisciplinary evaluation and consensus before considering offering ECMO even to our patients who are already listed, let alone patients who might be a bridge to decision. So we need to have some team consensus about this. It's not an individual decision, individual's decision. Some reasonable physical and physiologic condition prior to ECMO, again, getting back to the, the element of frailty, uh, patients who are severely deconditioned because of a delay in access. Some of these patients may have actually been in pretty good um, condition before going to an outside hospital, but they've become very deconditioned by the time they, they make it to a transplant center that can offer this would uh, be difficult to transplant, and I certainly would be reluctant to offer such a patient ECMO bridge to decision. So if the patient has suffered an extended period of physiologic compromise, then uh, we would likely not consider that patient for ECMO support for lung transplant. And importantly, you must have consent. I mean, it, it, this is difficult for patients and their families to understand, even if they've sort of walked through this process and are already waitlisted. Because, you know, regardless of indication, ECMO is challenging, and patients and their families really need to understand this up front, uh, including that the initiation of ECMO is not a guarantee of transplant, and it's not a guarantee of uh, making it to the wait list. So, <clears throat> you know, um, the other thing that complicates this is, you know, as transplant providers, we have obligations to all of our patients, which include being good stewards of organ utilization, and that's something that's built into the LAS, uh, the lung allocation score, to optimize outcomes for patients on the wait list. And that, that again, further complicates this process. Now, you mentioned that while most patients who receive ECMO pre-transplant survived transplant, many do not. What are some of the factors that may make patients less likely to survive to transplant after being placed on ECMO? 
Again, a great question. Uh, you know, the good news is that the patients we can successfully bridge the transplant do as well as non-bridge the transplant patients in our hands. Unfortunately, we cannot bridge all patients. And this is a problem that I think has plagued uh, the field in the past and uh, something that we continue to wrestle with is anybody that's placed on ECMO as a bridge to decision or a bridge to transplant requires continuous monitoring for their eligibility. And every day you have to come in and say, okay, is this patient still an eligible candidate for transplant? Because, um, you know, it just has to do with the time-limited nature of our ECMO support. Unlike, you know, ventricular assist devices that are much more durable, um, you know, we don't have the same durability and it's imperative that we evaluate this uh, continuously. The... um, you know, the major factors that contribute to patient demise while on ECMO pre-transplant mirror the same factors that lead to waitlisted patients being delisted prior to transplant, even if they're not on ECMO. I mean, patient frailty. I mean, there's an unrelenting progression of disease leading to severe decompensation. We just see that. Patients with interstitial lung disease, their, their disease is not static, and when it becomes truly um, uh, to the point where they are admitted to the hospital, and to the ICU, we know that their only pathway out really is going to probably be through transplantation, but they will continue to decompensate. And, um, you know, an inability to ambulate is uh, a really a crucial, a crucial factor, differentiating factor. I mean, when we look at patient assessment and we take a look at outcomes for bridge to transplant, that is one of the biggest uh, and most important factors for us. Is that patient actually able to participate in some form of physical therapy? Uh, I think that's borne out by virtually every center that that has any kind of uh, real experience with this. But, you know, these uh, processes, you know, are difficult, and and patients could end up needing things like renal replacement therapy. And uh, in our center, we would consider putting a patient on hold if that happened, because it would really denote that there are other organ systems that are starting to, to suffer. Um, comorbidities, whether severe or multiple, make it much more difficult to bridge transplant patients. So, um, you know, this, this certainly plays in our decision-making process, um, whether or not we think we're going to be able to successfully uh, move somebody from ECMO to transplant. Um, another thing that comes into our thinking or high panel reactive antibodies, PRAs, because uh, it makes it more difficult to, fi- to match an organ uh, to a patient and can cause severe delay in matching patients, regardless of whether they're already on the list or on ECMO or not. And unfortunately, ECMO bridge to transplant, as I mentioned, is a very li- uh, time-limited support system, unlike our VATs. Um, other factors that play into this are extremes of height, it's just, uh, you know, a fact of life that, unfortunately, it's much more difficult to find organs for patients who are quite short or very tall. Patients who are five feet tall are more challenging to find organs for than patients that are 5'8", and patients who are six feet, three inches tall are harder to find organs for. And so, uh, you know, being average sometimes is a real advantage, especially in matching. Uh, the underlying diagnosis, unfortunately, influences the ability to match an organ to a, for a patient, so the, the lung allocation score, the LAS, weighs diagnostic groups differently. Uh, so patients that have uh, pulmonary fibrosis are weighted higher than patients with COPD. And so what that patient, the, uh, what the patient presents with as a diagnostic group can certainly influence 
uh, how you view your ability to find organs for patients more rapidly. Can you tell us more about the results of prior studies involving patients who received ECMO prior to listing to lung transplant? Sure. I mean, there are several studies from a diverse range of centers from around the world demonstrating good outcomes for ECMO bridge to transplant. And, and importantly, we have seen a marked improvement in these outcomes over the past 10 years, which is very encouraging. As the technology has improved, so has our understanding of patient selection and management, which really um, is critical for, for considering anybody for a bridge to decision. And <clears throat> we've done other things, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in, uh, increased our focus on continued physiologic monitoring and mobility of patients. And that's really uh, led to a marked improvement in their outcomes and recovery from transplant. Fruit, um, groups that have reported on this include uh, the Italian group, uh, Croti et al., uh, that was uh, published a few years ago, actually, in CHEST. And, um, you know, they demonstrated very good outcomes for patients that they were able to bridge for two weeks or less. Patients that required more time uh, did not do as well, but that was really related more to an increasing SOFA score. The University of Pittsburgh has published their series uh, with good outcomes and, um, uh, you know, we published in 2019 that there was really no difference in outcome between bridge transplant and non-bridge transplant outcomes. You know, Chuck Hoops, I think he was the first author on an article that combined some of the UCSF data and University of Kentucky data, and that there were 31 patients in that study, uh, seven of whom were bridged to decision, and they reported 100% survival at one year. Now, it's obviously a small study, but it provides evidence for the feasibility of ECMO bridge to decision in an expert center and in good hands. And uh, in fact, Dr. Warren, uh, my colleague here <laughs> in this discussion, and some of her colleagues actually reported uh, successful use of ECMO bridge to decision for a 24-year-old patient with cystic fibrosis. And I actually applaud them for that. And I know that it's sometimes hard to argue the con side, and I, I do not hold that against her. But you know, the reality of it is, we can do this. And, um, you know, we know that we can do it. We have done it. I have done it uh, with our patients. Um, but it really boils down to patient selection, being smart about this, preparing the patient as best you can, their family, and having a center that can provide that level of expertise to make it successful. So, thanks. What are some of the criteria you think would make a patient a good candidate for ECMO as a bridge to decision regarding lung transplant? Again, a great question, really the heart of the matter for me. I mean, you know, what's sort of the, uh, you're already in a situation that is not ideal. So how do you make the best of a less than ideal situation? And near completion of their transplant evaluation with no red flags, such as a risk for recidivism, for smoking, or compliance issues with their prior treatment plans. For example, CF patients that had poor compliance prior to this, you know, critical admission uh, or borderline cardiac function, things that would really exclude somebody um, in, a, in a standard workup. You know, going to a bridge to ECMO bridge decision does not make that better and really complicates it. So having a near completion with, again, no red flags um, is very supportive. Patient and family understanding of the challenges in lung transplant and ECMO bridge to decision is 
uh, imperative. Uh, you know, a patient of mine years ago gave me a T-shirt that said, transplant is not for wimps. And, you know, it's, it is hard. And we ask a lot of our patients to ensure that, they, that we can provide them with a good outcome. Uh, and patients need to understand that. And they need to know that ECMO is not a guarantee of transplant. Um, so we have to have that understanding up front. Um, as I mentioned, no obvious contraindications to lung transplant and more minimal comorbidities. We've had patients that came to us in this situation that we were considering. And for example, uh, I can recall a patient when I was examining him, I noticed this incision. I was like, what is that from? And it was like, well, I had a melanoma resected, you know, a year ago. Well, that's a contraindication. And we didn't, uh, you know, pursue lung transplant because there are clearly some contraindications to that. So you have to be thorough in your evaluation. Um, not being, as I already mentioned, not severely compromised physiologically at the time of initiating ECMO, um, it really plays into the importance of a, of a frailty assessment and how important that is in our decision-making process. Because the sicker a patient is going into any operation, certainly a complex operation, the sicker that patient will be coming out of it. Um, the operation will be more challenging, the post-operative care will be more difficult, and the recovery phase for the patient will take longer. Not an ideal circumstance for, for a bridge to decision. A low PRA helps regardless of ECMO support or not. Um, if you have somebody with a very high PRA, 90% or more, and you're still wrestling with the bridge to decision process, it complicates it quite a bit. And uh, obviously, we, we would prefer, but it doesn't exclude patients that have extremes of height. But you know, that, that does not keep us from considering a bridge to decision. Thank you, Dr. Zapata. Now, Dr. Warren, you argued that lung transplant should not be offered as a bridge to decision about, or that ECMO should not be offered as a bridge to decision about lung transplant. You discussed data showing potentially worse outcomes in patients who received ECMO as a bridge to transplant. Can you please explain this data to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, and a word for, of wisdom for the listeners, be sure that your uh, old publications will always come back to haunt you. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> and it is a tough side of the fence to argue, especially because um, I've definitely participated in successful cases of bridge to decision, um, as well as cases that were much more challenging. And so um, I think this point and counterpoint is sort of born out of not necessarily saying you should never bridge to decision, but more of that it should be such a thoughtful process because of uh, the intricacies and how complicated it can be to make these decisions. Um, so definitely, as Dr. Baketa said, the outcomes have improved over the last decade and, in fact, significantly improved as our technology has improved, as our understanding of ECMO and the interplay between ECMO and transplant has improved. The survival gap has narrowed. Um, and in large volume centers who do a lot of ECMO and a lot of transplant and have really high-level expertise in both of those things, then probably the outcomes are pretty similar. But when you get outside of those centers, um, then those outcomes are probably not the same. That's where you start to see a bigger divergence of outcomes in folks who are being transplanted off of ECMO. 
Um, and and also just to caveat, you know, all of our the majority of our data, there's like Dr. Baquetta pointed out, there's very limited case series showing successful bridge to decision, but the majority of our the majority of our data uh, really comes from bridge to transplant. So we still don't have the best understanding starting to transplant more patients who have been bridged to decision and then accepted. So I think there's probably still more to come on what that looks like in terms of long-term outcomes. And when you look at uh, centers who have high-level ECMO uh, expertise and have high-level transplant expertise, that's really a pretty limited number of centers. So probably only about a quarter of the centers in the nation that uh, do transplant and ECMO could probably claim both of those things. Um, and so if the majority of ECMO centers and transplant centers don't have that expertise, then probably the majority of centers should not be bridging to transplant and therefore should not be bridging to decision. That said, I 100% agree if there is a way to get your patient to one of those centers where there's much more expertise in bridging to transplant from ECMO or bridging to decision, then that's probably the right thing to do for that patient so that they have that opportunity. Um, but it probably shouldn't be something that's being done at every ECMO and transplant center until we have um, better data on the, on the outcomes for lower volume centers and also for bridge to decision. How does the number of ECMO centers relative to the number of lung transplant centers affect your argument? This is kind of a tricky situation, I feel like, that we're finding ourselves in. So ECMO is exploding across the country. There's centers opening up everywhere. Um, folks are gaining more and more experience in ECMO. Um, also, as of last year, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization had 211 um, adult providers for uh, adult centers, sorry, um, for for ECMO, and there's only about a third of that in terms of transplant centers. So this mismatch, I think, has the potential to create two problems. First is that um, we may end up cannulating more end-stage lung disease patients than we actually have organs for, uh, which is a whole other issue in and of itself. But the second is that there might be the temptation to cannulate patients uh, as with an intent of bridge to decision without the input of a transplant team. And that's re really where I think um, folks could get into tough situations with treatment teams and also uh, with patients and their family members. Putting someone on ECMO uh, prior to a thorough discussion and evaluation with a transplant team can potentially set up sort of unrealistic exploits expectations, especially if it's determined that the patient has a clear contraindication to transplant. How do you think ECMO as a bridge to decision may affect decisions on whether or not to list the patient for lung transplant? I think this kind of speaks to one of um, the criteria that Dr. Baquetta suggested for 
who should be bridged. Um, and one of the things that he pointed out is that these folks should have almost completed their evaluation if they're going to be a patient that's bridged. Um, and I couldn't agree more with that. I think when you have a patient who comes in sort of de novo to the medical system, has clear evidence of end-stage lung disease, but has completed no aspects of the transplant evaluation, um, then there's certain aspects that are really difficult to complete on somebody who is on ECMO and depending on um, their condition when they come in. I think when you sidestep that normal transplant evaluation, it can make the decision-making um, a little more complicated and a little less objective. And I think we would all like to think that we could be, you know, 100% objective in all of these cases, but there's often a lot of overlap between the ECMO and transplant teams. They're definitely multidisciplinary um, uh, decision-making teams that go into every transplant decision. Um, but I think whenever you're sidestepping that normal process, there is a risk for the decision-making to become less objective. It is uh, invariably very difficult to turn down an awake ECMO patient that you know as soon as they come off, if they don't get transplanted, that they will die. Um, and, and a very, very difficult thing for the treatment team, I think, to arrive at and, and sometimes can kind of alter our normal algorithm for treatment decisions. Can you please discuss your concern for ECMO being used as a bridge to nowhere and the trauma that that can cause for patients and their loved ones? I think this sort of piggybacks off that previous discussion and um, what Dr. Baketa aptly pointed out that, uh, you know, it really needs to be clear to patients, family members, all parts of the treatment team uh, that if a patient is going to be bridged to decision, that that doesn't promise a transplant uh, and that if they don't get a transplant uh, and they do not, you know, recover, that the patient will have to come off ECMO at some point and, and the patient will die. And I, I think this is one of the uh, issues that folks can run into if those decisions have not been really thought out ahead of time and really discussed well with family members ahead of time. Um, and having the transplant team really involved in that discussion um, because it can be really traumatic for for patients and their family members to learn that they're not a candidate, um, as well as even for the bedside nursing to learn that they're not a candidate and now they have no options and that ECMO is not a destination therapy. Um, and it's a little different than telling somebody who comes into your, your transplant clinic as an outpatient saying, oh, you're not a candidate, they go home, they can, you know, maybe enroll in palliative care, they probably have more time. For many of these individuals, when you take them off ECMO, they're, they're going to die precipitously. And so um, having very frank conversations, realistic expectations ahead of time, super important. Dr. Bacchetta, how do you address their concern for the dreaded bridge to nowhere? Yeah, well, this is uh, something that we face, unfortunately, um, often, and not just, I'm not talking about ECMO bridge to decision, but if you work in critical care or you work uh, in 
oncology, uh, you know, many times you're stuck having very difficult conversations with with patients that and their family members uh, where the outcome is less than hoped for. And I think some of the points that Dr. Warren raised about uh, the emotional issues associated with that, with the uh, care providers, the nursing staff, and so on, is, are very real and, uh, and really can affect uh, morale. And you have to be fully conscious of that. Uh, you have to take it into consideration and uh, have mechanisms to deal with it as well. Uh, because we never want to be in a situation where we have a bridge to nowhere. We face this in heart failure. We fa- uh, face this in, in lung failure. Um, but we know that we're, we're going to face this uh, today and we're going to face it tomorrow, and we have to prepare ourselves for that. Um, despite those challenges, we still have an obligation to do the best that we can for, for our patients. And <clears throat> I think, um, you know, as a large ECMO program, uh, we definitely share all the concerns that Dr. Warren uh, mentioned Um but, you know, this is not unique to, to ECMO Bridge decision. And these challenges just come with the territory of caring for patients with terminal illnesses because that's what these patients have. They have a terminal illness. The outcome for patients with interstitial lung disease, the five-year outcome, is worse than it is for virtually every cancer with the exception of uh, lung cancer and pancreatic cancer. So it's difficult taking care of these patients. And, you know, there are very high emotional costs to the patients, their family, and the staff, and uh, but I think ultimately we fail our patients and our profession if we uniformly and prematurely uh, choose palliative pathways um, to avoid the emotional distress. And, and we, that onus is on us uh, and how we deal with it and how we support our staff members that have to work with these patients. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, Dr. Warren already mentioned this, that, you know, our challenge is really to take a thoughtful approach to each case. And you have to have a, a thoughtful decision-making, um, a multidisciplinary approach. You have to have people who have a little more distance sometimes that are involved in the decision-making process. Um, and so, uh, you know, even some of the subjects or some of the examples she cited as far as, like, you know, cannulating somebody with NC is a pathway to transplant. And I think... And I certainly share her concern that there are probably uh, ECMO centers out there that are not keeping that in mind, that, you know, they're not thinking through the entire process of how to uh, take that patient that they're cannulating with a chronic lung disease and get that patient off of ECMO and to a good outcome. And uh, that's incumbent upon our profession to, to uh, keep that in mind. Dr. Warren. You argue that the better answer to the dilemma is not to offer bridge to decision ECMO, but to advocate for increased organ donation and early referral for transplant evaluation. How do delays in referral for transplant evaluation and organ shortages contribute to worse outcomes for these patients? I think this is really the key issue in my mind. Um, You know, there are still over a 1,000 people waiting for lung transplant right now on the wait list, and people are still dying on the list or dying before making it to a transplant evaluation. 
In cystic fibrosis, we have data that patients are still being referred much later than they should be. Um, almost a third of patients with an FEV1, less than 30%, had not been referred to a transplant center. And this trend isn't limited to cystic fibrosis. And there's a lot of problems with late referral. Early referral allows a transplant center to complete a full evaluation using their normal algorithms, get a patient into pulmonary rehab, like Dr. Baketa mentioned, make sure that this patient is as fit as they can be going into their transplant, minimizing their debility, optimizing uh, what other comorbid diseases you can, mobilizing their network of social support, and really giving them the best opportunity to have a good transplant outcome. And then the second part of that is you just can't transplant what's not available. If there were more lungs, our sickest patients would probably need to be bridged less often, and you would also have more opportunities for uh, folks of varying sizes, like Dr. Baketa mentioned. Um, you know, they wouldn't be waiting as long and decompensating as far uh, if there were, uh, you know, larger lungs or um, a broader patient population to select from in terms of antibody matching. And so I think that's that's the key that can't be overemphasized that we need more lungs um, so that there's a less there's less need for this type of salvage therapy. Will the need go away a hundred percent? No, never. You know, you will always have a patient who um, rapidly decompensates, has completed most of their evaluation and and just has not had maybe that final transplant team meeting to decide to list them. You're going to still have patients like that, but my thought is we would definitely have fewer of those situations if we had earlier referrals and if we had more lungs to transplant. Thank you. Now, if there is one you know, thing... It, it, is it okay if I just make one comment here? I, I don't, I know you, I would like to just Absolutely. say one thing. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't want to interrupt. I hate it, <laughs> but um, you know, the early referral that Dr. Warren mentions, absolutely critical. If you're, if you're a physician that's taking care of somebody with chronic lung disease, just do the referral. What it's, it's, it's a low hurdle to get over, and it really starts the process. Even if someone doesn't need a transplant immediately, at least starts the introduction process. Um, organ donation is something that we all talk about. If we could just increase organ donation, we wouldn't have this problem. And I have to tell you, there have been decades of effort on this, and we really, uh, unfortunately, have not moved the needle on this much. Uh, I think what we are looking at, you know, is our ability to recover the organs that are offered. Right now, we only use about 20% of the organs that are offered because 80% of them are deemed unusable at the time of procurement. And I think we're going to have to put how to improve that 80%. And this is not a <laughs> this is a little bit off topic and I apologize, but when we really talk about being able to offer more organs for people, finding techniques that allow us to improve those uh, that 80% is going to be critical. And, and it's not going to just be ex vivo lung perfusion, but it's going to take other uh, approaches to make that 
to really improve our our organ availability. So I, I apologize for the aside. Yeah, I couldn't agree but... more. I, I think that technology is absolutely necessary so that we can use more of what we have in addition. Now, you both have made excellent points, but if there's one thing that you could have our listeners take away from this discussion, what would it be? Dr. Baquetta? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think uh, Dr. Warren already mentioned a couple. I, I would encourage early referral for patients uh, with lung diseases and uh, encourage organ donation. I think we need to look at ways of improving the organs that are offered to us. Um, I think we also need to understand that there are no perfect solutions and that we live in a very imperfect world. And in, and in our world, in pulmonary medicine and thoracic uh, surgery, it is very imperfect. Uh, and often the best we can do is search for a pragmatic solution. And in our patients with end-stage lung disease, the alternative of doing nothing, unfortunately, is death. And unquestionably, ECMO bridge to transplant and decision is fraught with challenges in the best of hands and circumstances, uh, but we try to err on the side of life, especially uh, in this field that is far from static. It is a dynamic process. It is a dynamic field, and uh, what we could do 10 years ago is very different than what we can offer today. We have made tremendous strides, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us in this field to not just move the field forward, but we're really doing this in the service of our patients. And if we do nothing, patients who could have been saved with a lung transplant would die. And so um, I just would encourage all of us to consider that. Um, you know, if we do nothing, we forgo the chance to improve the lives of our patients. And I, I see that ECMO Bridge decision is an opportunity um, for life. It's difficult and we have to be thoughtful uh, and apply a rational criteria uh, for this decision-making process. And Dr. Warren? I, I think we agree on a lot of the same key points. <laughs> um, it's, it's completely true. You know, when, when bridge to decision is on the table, um, I, I don't think there's a lot of black and whites in ECMO. I think there's a lot of gray when you decide um, who goes on and who doesn't. And it should just be very carefully thought out when bridge to decision um, is the discussion. And it should be thought out by a team who is very experienced in both transplant and ECMO uh, at a center who is used to doing that. Um, the pitfalls that we talked about earlier should be heavily vetted with the treatment team, um, with the bedside providers, uh, with the transplant team, and with patients and families ahead of time. And then I think that avoids a lot of the, the heartache that can occur, especially um, if transplant is not an option. But ultimately, I still, you know, would hold fast that patients need to be referred earlier, and then a lot of this discussion becomes a moot point because um, they will have completed their evaluation, um, and it's a, in, it's less of a question whether or not they should be bridged. Um, and and finally, I I I couldn't agree more. Organ donation is very important, but the ability to use the organs that we have and recover the organs that are donated. Um, can't be overemphasized either, and that technology needs to continue to be supported and investigated uh, as much as we can. Well, I'd like to give a big thank you to Drs. Baquetta and Warren for a great conversation. 
and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.